Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing... Present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 85 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I spoke with Dr. Martin Worthington, a professor of Assyriology at Trinity College, Dublin. Most of his research is on Mesopotamian philology, literature, or the relations between the two. He has also published on topics including Babylonian and Assyrian magic and medicine, Mesopotamian social history, Sumerian lexicography, and narrative strategies in Middle Egyptian literature. His current main lines of research include Mesopotamian orality, the structure of the Akkadian poetic line, and Sargon's riddle. He is a great believer in public outreach. In this episode, we discuss the reasoning behind his decision to switch from Egyptology into Assyriology, his experience producing a Babylonian-language short film, consulting for Marvel's Eternals, and battling the challenges of romanticizing ancient worlds for the purpose of simplification for the general public. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give our show a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining me this evening for you and day for me. And I would like to start us off with what I hope will be a very easy question for you, which is, when did your interest in the ancient world begin? Oh gosh, good evening. I think people often have a habit of adding things that aren't supposed to be part of the answer. So you're quite right, it should be a straightforward question. But if I start putting in add-ons, then it gets more complicated. When? I can remember being very interested in ancient Egypt when I was maybe 12 or 13. I was attending an Italian secondary school, and there were certainly a lot of books about Egypt around the house. And now let me start straying into questions that you didn't ask me to answer, but... Speaking as somebody who's gone on to develop a professional interest outside of ancient Egypt, I naturally feel a kind of bond of healthy competition with that fraternity of people who have the luxury of pyramids and sacred crocodiles and looking upon them with a touch of envy. Um, I'm also very aware of why Egypt pings so many bells at different stages of people's interest in the ancient world. It has long lists of things that you can learn. There are lists of pharaohs and dynasties. And I remember when I was 12 or 13 or something, I think I probably knew by heart 
names of the pharaohs of the 10 major dynasties. And I thought I'd understood ancient history. Years later, you know, I look upon my child naivety with fondness thinking, no, you hadn't understood anything, but that doesn't matter because you enjoyed it. And of course, you know, over time, um, there were animals and there were gods and there were societies. And in the meantime, I'd moved to the UK for my secondary education, British Italian family. And there was a very, very impressive teacher in my school called Reverend David Cook, who knew ancient Hebrew. He'd been a lecturer in Hebrew at the University of Birmingham. It was also rumoured that he had, quote unquote, taught himself a dialect of biblical Hebrew, which I now take to mean that he'd taught himself Aramaic. He also knew Latin and Greek, an extremely impressive man, very inspiring. And he encouraged me to take my interest in Egypt more seriously, to make it more academic. So he said, why don't you take part in this competition? So I took part in the competition and I went to museums and I had a theme and I took photographs and that gave me a whole new, again, I thought at the time, very sophisticated and very advanced way of relating to ancient sources. And again, you haven't asked this, but I'm answering my own question. Um, Egypt gave way to Mesopotamia over the course of my BA degree. The intention was to go and become an Egyptologist, but we had Amelie Court, uh, a lady of German origin who was a professor at UCL. She was terrifying as well as intoxicatingly interesting. Um, we were all frightened of her. She had this ability to growl at us in between cigarettes and we all rattled in our boots. And she kept on telling us that we were all, um, how can I put this politely? Well, the way I sometimes tell friends the story, she told us we were all stupid, and I'm sure that she didn't, but um, the, because we didn't know German and we didn't know the languages of ancient Mesopotamia. So I decided to be an Egyptologist who was less stupid than average. So I went to Germany to learn German and the languages of ancient Mesopotamia and really never looked back. Somehow we clicked. And the, the, the interest then, I think all of us who study the ancient world at whatever level uh, sort of enjoy different strands of the interest maturing and pulsating at different rhythms at different times. But let us say that if I started off with an interest in the culture and the religion and the visual dimension, then over time I gravitated more towards the language end of things. Very, very close reading of sources and particular words and trying to work out what they mean and how and why. And I'm currently writing a book which is very much in that vein. But that's not what you asked me. So why don't I pass the baton back over to you? No, that's wonderful. I love hearing everyone's unique entrance and story. And goodness, it struck me that your story, it, it rings true to sort of the adage that I hear a lot in ancient studies, which is, oh, well, why did you decide to branch into something or take on something that you didn't think of initially? And and the answer usually is, oh, out of spite or just out of, I didn't want to feel stupid. I wanted to add something more dynamic and so I love that you definitely had this goal of studying Egypt I I commend you I absolutely that that rings true to my own sort of path with ancient studies I had a wonderful sixth grade teacher and she taught me about Egypt and it was wonderful and magical and I loved it and I thought I will go and be an Egyptologist as well and then that did not happen and I went into classics instead and I was very happy but I, I do love your branching narrative. Now, is it hard to sort of make the jump or is it not as hard as many lay people might assume that if you, okay, if you learn to read a language like Middle Egyptian, okay, it's got hieroglyphs, it's, it's like ancient Pictionary. So then to go and then start to pick up ancient Mesopotamian, when you're starting Akkadian also, 
little pictures. Is that difficult or was it easy coming from Egypt and not something a bit further afield? Well, I do remember having done my bachelor's degree in Egyptology and related things and some ancient Near Eastern courses with Professor Kurt, whom I mentioned earlier, having gone to an American university to do an interview for a PhD program. And by this time, I think I was perhaps applying for Near Eastern. I, I, I forget. The point is that I was in this American institution and they introduced me to their current students. And I asked them, how do you learn cuneiform? Because I remember having this massive inferiority complex, you know, from the Egyptian side, as you say, particularly the degree I did, we had a very little hieratic, it was mostly hieroglyphs and they're easy to remember and look very nice. And cuneiform just looks like this. Friends call them chicken scratchings. It's very fitting that we have a dog barking outside in a, sort of a fit of conniption over the complexity or the apparent complexity, visual complexity of cuneiform. And I remember the answer that this um, PhD student gave me. She looked bemused. And she said, well, it's not that difficult. You just learn them, which at the time I thought wasn't the most enlightening answer. But then not long after that, I was studying in Germany. I was learning cuneiform and I sat down and I had a list of signs with values and I looked at them and I sort of understood what she meant. Uh, you, you just learn them. It's probably something vaguely similar with Chinese, although I've never tried to study Chinese characters. You know, seen from afar, they all look totally different. But once you've started drawing 20 of them by pen, you realize that actually they're completely different. This one's more like a square. This one has something in the middle. This one's heavier towards the left. And of course, then you, you learn them in context. You recognize them. I think to come back to a proper answer to your question, if you want to be an epigrapher, if you actually want to read clay tablets and particularly broken clay tablets, then you, you really need a very good eye. And that's extremely difficult. And I'm not an epigrapher, and that, that's not something I would ever claim to do as, as well as epigraphers. But if you simply want to learn, as it were, printed cuneiform on a page, then you'll find it begins to stick. Now, the language is a different story. Of course, people often think of script and language as being kind of the same. And there are cultures where this makes sense. You know, Chinese language and Chinese script tend to go together. You normally see Chinese language written in Chinese script, and you normally see Chinese script writing Chinese language, for example. I say Chinese, we all know that there's Mandarin, Cantonese, much more complicated, but I, I'm simplifying along the way. Um, but so when you start studying the language of ancient Mesopotamia, then you have the cuneiform script, which wrote Sumerian, a language that died out maybe around 2000 BC, unrelated to any language that we know of otherwise, and then Babylonian and Assyrian, often termed Akkadian, completely unrelated to Sumerian linguistically. It's a bit like, you know, Ostrogoth and, I don't know, Tibetan or something. But on the language level, I think it partly depends on, on the way your sort of brain structures things, but also the experiences that you've had. So, for example, Babylonian and Assyrian, very, very regular. And even the so-called irregular features actually end up being much more regular once you get under their skin. So if you like regularity and you like predictable paradigms and you sort of like thinking in tables, then you'll take to them like a fish in water. Whereas if you have a different attitude to language learning, then you might be happier learning a modern language or you might be happier learning an ancient language, but taught by different means. There are some people who learn languages more easy through conversations and oral exercises. Now, I don't think that there's a program in the world that teaches Babylonian or Assyrian entirely as a modern spoken language. Great pity, actually, there, there should be. Some people do that with Latin, I think, and, and Greek, perhaps. But sometimes with my students, you do actually have a game where you have a sort of role play where, OK, you pretend you're an Assyrian king and tell me about yourself, because that's the kind of sources you've been reading. And one thing I've always had in the back of my mind to do would be to play Settlers of Catan. 
in Babylonian, because the kind of sentences, who will give me two sheep for one rock, are exactly the kind of sentences that first-year Babylonian students can or ought to be able to translate. What was your question? Is it hard to learn these languages? Well, uh, learning a language, I think, is one of the most demanding or the most neurologically demanding activities a human being can engage in. So, yes, it's hard, but also learning French or learning Spanish is also hard. It's all about the level you want to take it to, the degree of intensity that you're willing to expose yourself to, but it's also about the rewards, isn't it? I mean, the hardness melts away in the face of the feeling that now you can decode things that you couldn't decode earlier. That all the, because with Babylonian and Assyrian, there's the caveat that verbs, you can't look up in the dictionary unless you know how they work. If I give you Iprus, which means he or she divided, you'd think, great, I look under I for India, Iprus. But the answer is no. What you have to do is take the verbal form Iprus and then extract from it the P, the R and the S. And then you have to add A, A and make Paras. And that's what you look up in the dictionary. So day one, you don't even know how to look stuff up in the dictionary. But by the end of week one, suddenly a whole new world is unlocking and clicking before your eyes as if, you know, you're the master locksmith and able to undo everything. Why don't I stop talking? <laughs> no, it's wonderful. And I enjoy, I greatly enjoyed your description because I, I remember it, my Greek course, my introductory ancient Greek course, my professor, he said something very similar. He said, prepare yourselves because this semester your brains are going to hurt and they're going to hurt a lot because not only are you going to learn ancient Greek, you are going to learn a lot more about English and how we think of grammar and putting things together. And I remember sitting there sort of skeptical as a new student saying, oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure, whatever. Okay, just t teach me the ancient language. I'm sure it's not going to change. Boy, did it change. I remember he said on day two, you will discover it's like putting on glasses. Greek is so clear. The clarity you get when you finally can decipher an ancient Greek sentence. He was just like with the fact that word order doesn't matter and it's it's not like English. It's not rigid. You can just say whatever. But if you understand the words, you will know and you will know clearly. And I remember the first day that I finally was able to read an entire paragraph of ancient Greek and understand it in its entirety. I said, wow, he was right. It was like needing glasses, not knowing it, and then popping them on and seeing very clearly everything in front of you. So language is very exciting. And you remember what the paragraph was. Yes, and I still have the textbook. I used the Athanas Day. I believe it was the second edition that we started with. And it was a paragraph about our made-up ancient Greek farmer, Dikaiopolis. Dikaiopolis Athenaios Estin. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, that one. Exactly. Uh, teaching us. And it was it was the very first one teaching us he was a farmer and he was from outside of Athens and he had his labor or work in the fields and his cows her his oxen and his slave xanthius oh yes i still have it somewhere it's on my bookshelf i'll, I'll have to find it and uh, read through it again but it, yes learning language is kind of like solving a puzzle and it's one thing that i love now we've talked a great deal and i and i want to get into more but i want to kind of rewind us a little bit and say egypt is very 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 seductive and powerful and wonderful and i somehow managed to finagle it where most of my friends are Egyptologists and I am not, which is hilarious. But because it sort of draws you in and it's one of those 
beautiful ancient old things and it's got the power of pharaohs and mummies and all these seductive elements. Something had to be extremely seductive to draw you away from this. So when you were sort of making the decision to stop your path in Egyptology, what was it that really made you go, I, I cannot continue and I, I must make the switch? I mean, because I, I believe that most scholars, as curious people, we experience other cultures, other things, and think, you know, this is amazing and I would love to do more reading on it and learn more, but not to the degree where you would sort of stop and then go a different direction. So what was it for you that was so powerful that you were like, I have to switch? Hmm. Let me first add a footnote to what I said earlier. I think I might have said hodikaiopolos or dikaiopolos, which of course is an analogical error. It's dikaiopolis, isn't it? Uh, my mistake. Well, I'm not. I don't think that my particular trajectory should in any way imply anything derogatory about Egypt, which is amazing and it's an incredible subject. I think it's partly about the people that you happen to meet. You know, maybe if I'd met people who were at the right time and the right place and were doing the right things, I'd have stayed in Egypt or who knows, gone into something totally different. But I met the right people. I met people who gave me the feel that Mesopotamian studies was something that I could that I could understand, actually, with Egyptian and here, I suppose, we're not into a general denigration, but in my sort of personal little vibe or jibe, the fact there were no vowels and the fact that the verbal forms uh, were sometimes disputed made it very unsettling as a beginner. Whereas for a beginner, Babylonian is very safe territory, you know exactly where you are. So I think actually, if you started out in Babylonian and then went into Egyptian, that would be like putting on the light. But as a beginner, I think Babylonian um, is a safer seat. If you're interested in the details, if you're not interested in details, then Egypt is Egyptian is much better because um, a lot of the things are less visible. But yes, these comparative exercises, you know, um, there are so many coincidences built into anybody's professional trajectory. I was taught by Nicholas Postgate during my MPhil, and he was a very inspiring scholar. But before that, I'd been taught by Professor Annette Skoll. She ran a very, very thorough and systematic introduction to Akkadian. We did lots of exercises. And I remember once we were all supposed to have thought of a sentence. I can't remember if it was in German or Babylonian. But anyway, she went around the room and one after the other, um, people were saying, oh, I'm terribly sorry, I didn't have time to do it this week. And I sat there realizing, hang on a second, by the time Prisgall gets round to me, I actually have enough time to cook something up. And so I sat there and it came round to me and I was the only person in the class who had an answer and I had a little moment of triumph. And I'm not sure that my entire career will have hinged on that particular moment, but it was nonetheless a sort of nice little um, cherry along the way. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And again, everyone has a different branching path and it is very shaped by the, the people you meet. And I would say that happened for me as well because I probably would have gone into something that wouldn't have been good for me in the long run but I had amazing people say wait you can still do what you love but let's transform that a little bit and I was able to find a niche as well so now when going into and and when even thinking at, at least as someone outside the field proper when I think about Mesopotamia and when I think about these ancient cultures when I think of Babylon and Assyria I think the first thing that I and many other people would think about is the archaeological side, right? We would think of the art, the incredibly beautiful art and maybe the palaces, something, I don't know, definitely the art motifs. So when asked about the literary side, I would say I, I'm close to 
the ancient fields. I know people who, but I actually don't know much about the tradition of literary history and texts that we can find from anywhere in Mesopotamia. So as someone who did like the language and the textual side, for the general public who may not be aware, are there actually a lot of texts that we are unaware of? Pairing it to the sheer volume of things we have from Greece and Rome. If I want to go find something written in Latin, I can easily find 10,000 things. If I want to find something in Greek, I can find a lot. I don't know what text I should be looking for if I want to find something from in Akkadian. So are there a lot? That's a very good question. There are, and also a lot of them are now online, which wouldn't have been the case, well, X years ago. Let's see. First of all, for Sumerian, there's a project called the Electronic Text Corpus of Sumerian Literature, which is not the most wieldy title. And actually, the interface also isn't terribly wieldy. But what they've done is they've gone and translated into English um, pretty much all of Sumerian literature, which has all these stories that some of them you raise your eyebrows and my goodness, that wouldn't have been published in the 19th century, you think. Um, there are gods, there are tricks, they get drunk, there are powers that get stolen. Um, there's the goddess Inanna or Inanna uh, who takes a trip to the underworld and has to be rescued to come out of it because procreation has stopped on Earth. Now, there's always, of course, a social context behind both the production and the transmission of literature. And in the case of these works of Sumerian literature or Sumerian language, they were written down on tablets of clay by Babylonian school children, mostly school boys, probably, round about 1800-1900 BC. So Sumerian by this point was pretty much dead or dying, but it was still a prestigious language. It was used in temple cult. Contracts were largely written in Sumerian, so it was something that professional scribes needed to have. And in order to inculcate it, their teachers devised this syllabus that was fairly standard across Mesopotamia. There's this group of 10 compositions that modern scholars call the Decad that got copied and copied again in extract form. So lots of tablets, you know, lines 1 to 10 and then lines 15 to 20 and so on. And by putting together fragments of fragments of all these different manuscripts, uh, people have been able to reconstruct these works. And new ones are still coming out of the ground. So Yana Matusak in Chicago has just reconstructed uh, a composition that's new to her, essentially. There were about only three people in the world who realised it was there before she pieced it together painstakingly. And it's a, I mean, how to put this politely, it's kind of a bitch fest between two ladies who were talking about what it would mean to be the perfect woman and are under no uncertain uh, terms that each one is far from perfect. And this gets pointed out and um, they talk about grinding corn on a grinding stone because in the ancient world even in the middle east still fairly modern times you know families would make their own flour with a grindstone and there's a wonderful verb ar today we call it ar number three that means to grind and one of them says to the other ar 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 you know grinding 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 and i think that um, there's probably no coincidence that this aggressive sounding word gets spoken three times so there's the whole world of sumerian literature which is huge and exciting and there's the world of Babylonian Assyrian slash Akkadian literature. So the most famous story in there is Gilgamesh. And this is the one that people today can relate to most easily. And you can see why. It's, um, Gilgamesh was a king of Uruk. He was full of heroic ideals. He wanted to establish a name for himself. He was also a warrior. And the city of his, the people of the city had no rest. So they complained to the gods because he was too obstreperous. And the gods send this mowgli like creature, a giant called Enkidu, who's made out of clay and lives among the gazelles. And one day, um, Gilgamesh becomes aware of him and sends out a harlot 
the less fancy term for that is a prostitute, sends out Shemchat, the harlot who ends up humanizing Enkidu through six days and seven nights of her professional activity, and brings him to Uruk, and he and Gilgamesh become friends, and they go to the Cedar Mountain, and they destroy its guardian, the monster Humbaba, and in the end Enkidu dies, and then Gilgamesh goes on a quest for immortality, he even finds the survivor of the Flood. So for people who are interested in the Bible, there's a huge connection here, because in uh, the early 1870s it turned out that the story of Noah and the Ark was actually there, on cuneiform, as part of the Babylonian poem you know, with the animals going on the ark and the big waters and everything. So this caused a massive stir. And that turned out to be a part of the flood story within the broader Gilgamesh poem, because Gilgamesh goes and finds the survivor of the flood and says, I want to be immortal. You managed it. How can I do it too? And the reply is, well, look, in my case, it was like this. Cue Noah story. So I'm afraid that for you, it ain't going to work. And Gilgamesh goes home with his tail between his legs, and some people think he's become uh, wiser as well as older. So that's the one that um, has become famous. It's also a very good name, isn't it? Gilgamesh. It works in all languages. Some say, I don't know, Montmorency Fortescue wouldn't probably have quite the same international ring, but Gilgamesh does. So that's the famous one. Oh, there are lots of others. There's uh, the Ereshkigal cycle with her sister Inanna in the underworld. There's the epic of creation, so-called, because it starts off with the creation of the world, although actually it's all about the god Marduk, um, who's the chief god of Babylon. You see, the Mesopotamians are very aware that theological history and political history have to line up. So if Babylon is now the top city, which for a time it was, that means that Marduk must be the top god, which he presumably was. So if he was, why is he the top god? And there's this whole story about how there was a monster and Marduk was the only god who was able to vanquished the monster and through that the other gods did obeisance to him and lent him their powers and even their names. That was a work of huge importance to the Babylonians and Assyrians themselves. Now this is an interesting one because the Assyrians actually had their own version where they took out the name of Marduk and they went and put in the name of their own national god, Ashur, which is the same as the word Assyria. Uh, so they kind of reappropriated this work of Babylonian cultural heritage to turn it into a vehicle of Assyrian theo- political propaganda. But also there's a poor man of Nippur. Um, there's a film of it on YouTube in original Babylonian. And that was acted out by students. That's a story 160 lines long, which is probably not a coincidence. Babylonians are very into numbers and 160 is kind of a perfect number because 60 was a perfect number and 100 was kind of a perfect number. So 160 is even better. Uh, that's written in the form of a poem, but it's a revenge folktale. This man is very poor. He needs help. He takes a goat to the mayor of the city, kind of expecting, you know, I give you a goat to help me in return, but the mayor has him thrown out. And then he takes revenge three times on the mayor, and the mayor is left half dead, crawling into his city. Crawling, he went into the city. Says that there's a huge volume there. There's a very nice book by Ben Foster called Before the Muses. And of course, Assyriologists, they live under the shadow of Egyptologists, and they live under the shadow of classicists. And so finally, when you translate the entirety of Babylonian and Assyrian literature, you call it before the muses to show that um, Babylonians got there first. So anybody who was interested could easily go and find that. But these days, oh, there's, um, there's actually something called the Electronic Babylonian Library run at the University of Munich. And you'll find most of Babylonian literature either already there or soon to be. There's a dialogue called the Theodicy between two friends about whether gods are just very, very complex imagery. I, I've read it several times and I don't really understand it. I've read it in English, I've read it in Babylonian. 
but the imagery is so dense and so complicated. At some point, I need to sit down and spend six months doing little but, but reading the theodicy, which I've not yet done. To answer your question, is there lots of literature from ancient Mesopotamia out there? As much as you like. Now, there are caveats, uh, which is to say that if you simply read it unprepared, expecting what you might get from, I won't even say Homer, I'll say a modern simplification of Homer, then you might at first be disappointed. But once you get into the spirit of it, once you start to know the characters, and of course, reading it in the original language adds a great deal. We, they, don't, they don't really have meter as such in their poetry, but they have something called verse structure, where verses are constructed symmetrically or non-symmetrically, and they go along and they sometimes have words. You remember when we went back to the start of our conversation with that ipros, and you had to extract the P, the R, and the S? That's what we call the root the three letters that give the meaning. Hebrew has this, Arabic has it, and Babylonian and Syrian do, because they're part of the same language family. So you'll find words with the same root side by side, and that creates effects which are very hard to replicate in English. Oh, but it's a professional, it's a professional treasure chest. Um, I'll give you an example. I was reading Gilgamesh, the Flood Tablet, Tablet 11, with my students, and somebody, it might have been me, pointed out that there was a word whose ending was missing. You know, in Greek, if you suddenly said poll instead of polis, that would sound a bit odd. And so we sat there and scratched our heads. And a long time later, I suddenly thought I understood why. And I now have this elaborate theory that actually there was a message that was worded so that you could understand it in two different ways. It's one of these oracles, you know, a bit like uh, no man of woman born shall harm Macbeth. Well, that sounds good except it turns out that there was a catch and that a caesarean cut apparently doesn't count as being a woman born, and so then somebody's able to kill Macbeth after all. And in Latin and Greek, you have them, uh, ibis redibis non morieris in bello. The oracle uh, says to the soldier, ibis, you shall go, redibis, you shall return, non morieris in bello is you shan't die in battle. And of course, the soldier dies in battle, so when people remonstrate, the answer is, oh, no, 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 what I actually said was, ibis, Redibis non morieris in bello. But that's awkward because you can't actually do that in Latin, right? Redibis non would be very unnatural word order. But in this thing in Gilgamesh, the lines that I think are so worded as to give you these two completely opposite meanings, I think it actually works quite well. So you can read it on lots of different levels, like any good literature. You can have the, um, the surface reading, you can have the philological reading, you can have the symbolic reading. Why don't I stop talking? <laughs> I love the analytical view, though. I love how you really like to get in there and break down things and look at them. It, it's it's like a fascinating big puzzle. Now, because you are so good with the languages and the aspect and, and the literature, you've mentioned several things that I want to get. I'll start with The Poor Man of Nippur. I had never really heard of it until not that long ago, basically, when I figured that if we were going to be speaking, I should really figure out what what that is and to my delight it is freely available on youtube i think that's where i saw it but yeah it's incredible i mean and you did the dialogue for it and and it believe correct me if i'm wrong but that i think is still the only completely done media anything completely in the babylonian language not as far as I'm aware, and one rather suspects that sadly it will retain that status for, for some time to come. But it is incredible. And so you've had that experience doing that, which anyone, everyone listening, go check it out. It's it's fantastic. And if you want to hear recreation of an ancient language, go go see that. Now, 
in terms of other media things, we don't have, I was realizing this the other day, we don't have a lot on ancient Mesopotamia. I mean, we have certain things that are quite old adaptations, let's say. And then we have other more modern things that are not really about Mesopotamia that might sort of have a small section that goes into it or whatever. So there's not a lot done. But I know you were approached and you wrote the Babylonian dialogue for the Eternals film. The Marvel Cinematic Universe approached you and said, please make us dialogue for this. What was that like? And were they hoping that you would bring all this well of wonderful language expertise? Like, what was the direction like when it came in? Was it, okay, we would like to do something accurate so we can, you know, say we have something that's both cool and accurate? Or was the direction more... If you get it completely accurate, great, but also we just want something that sounds cool and vaguely ancient. Oh, the whole thing was enormous fun. And when I was doing it, I had no idea it was for the Eternals. The project had the secret name Sack Lunch. So as far as I, I didn't even know that was a secret name. So I was working a film, film called Sack Lunch. Uh, over time, it became apparent that was a secret name and there was a real name and eventually it turned out as Eternals. They, they were very interested in trying to be sensitive. Uh, this is a... It's a film which has, as I understand it, I'm not a film buff, but it's been a, a milestone in many respects. You know, there's a gay characters on it. There are lots of very strong female roles. I think it, it's very much a film that wanted to be broad and inclusive. And so, you know, when it comes to an ancient language, then you try and do it properly and you try and be inclusive. So they would send me the dialogue in English a bit at a time. I never saw the script of the whole film. I would only see the scene I was working on. And I sometimes didn't even know the name of the character. You know, they didn't want to give very much away, presumably afraid that I'd go and tell all my friends or something. But then I, you know, do my best to translate. And sometimes I'd say, well, look, this one's tricky, but you could try A, B or C. And here they all are. And you take your pick. And I sent in recordings of the lines. And over time, as I got into this, because, you know, I didn't have experience of doing quite the same. I started sort of trying to deliver the same lines at different speeds and with different pieces of intonation. Because I think if I were an actor and I suddenly had to do the lines in, I don't know, Tibetan, if I simply had somebody saying the sentence in Tibetan once, I wouldn't feel I could really get my mouth around it. But if somebody said the sentence in Tibetan five times, you know, slow, fast, angry, shouting, whispering, then you'd start to see how the sentence actually works on the level of being a sentence. So I, uh, with what degree of success, you'd have to ask the people who ended up speaking the lines. I don't know. But um, I tried to do that. Very, very interesting because, you know, expressions like thank you. I mean, famously, Babylonian doesn't have thank you. So what do you do there? And then there were, I think that there was a, something about somebody feeling the air vibrate or something at one point. I, I'm not sure if it made it into the final cut. But, you know, vibrate isn't exactly, it's it quite a sort of, you know, it's either going to be a musical instrument term, but they don't talk much about musical instruments in Babylonian. It can be a technological term, but they didn't have that kind of technology. And one of the things that these translations really did for me was made me very aware of the filters through which we're allowed to view this language, which has not been spoken for a long time. It's not as if, you know, we simply sat in a marketplace and listened to a thousand hours of conversations. Because if you did that today, you'd get the professor of classics talking to the professor of German about how wonderful Faust is. And you'd get somebody saying, why did you steal my wallet? You get a real cross section of, of how the language is used. But ancient Mesopotamia is different in this respect. Now, if I say that nobody in ancient Mesopotamia ever wrote anything ever, the statement is very easily falsifiable by the million odd cuneiform tablets which are sitting in museums all over the world. 
but it's um, a falsehood which almost amounts to a truth in the sense that in any given Mesopotamian life it wasn't very present in people's lives. Even people who were literate didn't spend all their day reading and writing, as far as we can tell. You know, they'd write a tablet every few days, and for the rest of the time, they just got on talking to people and doing stuff. So the writing isn't a straightforward reflection of the language. It's quite constrained and tight-bound. So a lot of economic documents all follow the same pattern. The royal inscriptions, the king saying how great they are, are all full of set phrases that are how you talk in a royal inscription. We've got lots and lots of praise. We really know how to do praise in Babylonia because of all the hymns and the epics and the poems and the prayers. You know, you are the star. You are the grace of the gods. You know, yes, Rabbi Tililiati, you are the greatest one of the gods. But we don't have much sense of real life conversation. And one of the things that Eternals wanted was real life conversation. So within the limits of you know time, scope, resources, abilities, and sanity, I had to try and sort of go and I won't say read between the lines, but scratch around in our written sources to find a little nugget which gave the kind of feel that I wanted. Um, and if ever we find, a, you know, someone who speaks fluent Babylonian, then we'll be able to ask them whether they think that it works. But the whole thing was an enormous amount of fun. It just sounds like it would be such a fun project. And it's very funny because it, unlike a lot of other films or even TV shows where they have historical consultants, yeah, this is like a huge one where you it would have the code name and the, the utmost secrecy. So that sounds like it was kind of a, a fun constraint to also play around with. So I can only imagine the shock when found out, oh, this is this is Eternals. This is for Marvel. This is um like like a major project. Was this your first tr truly like big media project or had you done some other consulting work? Hilariously, I'd done Godzilla. So before Eternals, I was like, you could get these emails out of the blue, you know, dear Mr. Worthington, would you mind doing X? And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. And then it turns out that X was actually X and Y and Z. So I got an email from uh, the musician who was doing the soundtrack for a film. And he said, I can't tell you what the film is, but it's about an ancient creature waking up. OK, and we want this translating into an ancient language. And I said, well, would Babylonian do? And he said, yes, it'll do fine. So again, that went, I think it's called in English, Goodbye Old Friend, and it went on to be the song sung in Babylonian that was used throughout the Godzilla soundtrack. And I had no idea I was doing Godzilla at the time. And that was interesting because I, 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 it's a long time ago, I can't give you the example specifically, but I remember there was something where I realised that sounds a bit odd in English. Well, if you translate that literally, that sounds a bit odd. But as it happens... There's a Babylonian phrase which is kind of similar, and I think would be really good. Can I use that? And like, yeah, absolutely, go for it. Uh, so I mean, it's also nice to have this back and forth because I think I'm sure that you know, in the same way that I wouldn't know where to begin producing a Hollywood film, what I do is probably a bit of a mystery to the people who know how to make Hollywood films. And so to have a little bit of communication backwards and forwards so that they realise that this isn't just a slavish automation, but there's judgment and you know context and, and things like that and that you're doing your best to take these into account and deliver what they want in the right sort of way ah it was education for me and it might even who knows have been a one point not point one percent education for them it, it, continuing in that vein we talk a lot about reception studies being more than just someone makes a film we also talk about it more than just being academics talk about it in a non-academic setting. We talk about sort of marrying the different platforms and mediums. Now, 
we kind of live in a, the last, I don't know, five, 10 years have been a really a renaissance in classical material. I mean, there's so many things about Greece and Rome, Greece and Rome, maybe Egypt. But even then, I, it's problematic because Egypt is always in ruin. It's never at its height. It's quite strange. It's usually biblical in nature. Maybe if you're lucky, it wouldn't be. But really, there isn't a lot for, as as we've said, ancient Mesopotamia. So if we were to see improvement and also create the creation through that for, of more consulting jobs for academics, who I'm sure would love to get their material out so people can receive these studies in a, in a more bitty, manageable way. Like, what would you like to see done? Like, I'm sure there are so many great... And for argument's sake, let's leave out Gilgamesh because that is kind of the more relatable, sort of famous one. So without Gilgamesh, though, is there a king, a certain time period, something from either ancient Babylon or Syria, Sumer, something that you would love to see done? And and it doesn't have to be a film. It could be a TV show. It could be a play. It could be something just adapted uh, that would make it easier to help us learn more in, in a fun, engaging manner. I think there's a film called Sin City, and it's three different stories of which the first is someone who wakes up next to a body and then has to try and work out what happened. And at one point he's driving along and he says, I'm not smart enough to put it all together yet. And I kind of have that feeling with your question. It's funny, isn't it? These ancient civilizations, we first hear about them when we're small, and often they sort of stay at that level. You have this impression that uh, they're the kind of thing, almost like in the sense of, you know, the Tolkienian dwarfs, like a dwarf's paradise put there for kids to be interested in. Whereas in reality, it's just stuff that happened. You know, humans on the planet doing their business, buying, selling, helping, killing, plundering. God knows that we have examples of those under our eyes today. So what I'm trying to say is that if you de-romanticize these ancient civilizations, then it becomes much harder to know what to do with them. Whereas if you allow yourself to indulge the romantic vision, then it's clear what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to have temples and priestesses and all of that. What would I like to see done? I think I can give you at least two different answers. One is Going back to that poem I said I don't understand, well, for a start, it's broken. So first of all, I'd like editors to actually put it back together and find all the bits of clay, and that'll be a big job. Uh, but when it's done, I would really like to see two clever actors who know Babylonian. Now, this might be quite a big reverse, but I would like to see two clever actors who know Babylonian acting out the two parts and saying the lines to each other where they make choices about intonation and what belongs with what and what's answering what. And I would love to see whether that helps me to understand how the whole thing works, because it is a dialogue. So, of course, it was supposed to be uh, performed aloud like that. But that's on a petty, selfish level. And I don't think anybody else would be terribly interested. I think rather than me try and blurt out anything that makes any sort of sense, well, what I should really say is that I would like to see some kind of creative type whose job it is to see the glory and the grandness in narrative ideas, in spaces, in visual culture, and make something of it. That's that's not my job. I'm a philologist. Um, you know, I, I can give you the materials, and then it's your job to go and do that. That would be amazing. In fact, I know someone who's done something similar. Emily Wilson has just published, I think the title of the novel is Inanna. It's the first of a trilogy. Yes, people say Inanna or Inanna differently. I think the spelling here is Inanna. And I had the good fortune to read that before publication. Um, a remarkable work. 
set in the mythological world of ancient Mesopotamia, so it, it makes no pretense of trying to talk about normal people, which is what Mesopotamian sources often don't talk about. It fully buys into the fact it's all about gods and uh, humans just get moved around like pawns on a chessboard. And with that premise, it does an incredibly good job of weaving a story that builds in different segments of Mesopotamian myths and gives you these gods as plausible characters that make sense to an audience today. I, I loved it when I read it. Obviously, I'm biased because it's about Mesopotamia, but I was very impressed. I've never I've never seen anybody done anything with Mesopotamian materials in a modern narrative setting that I liked as much. So I said, you know, send me volume two as soon as you can, because I want to read that. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think that in terms of its modern reception, you could argue that Mesopotamia hasn't really found its muse. And so what something um, that Eternals could do is in the same way it's normalized other parts of the human experience, it's created a world where kids now grew up with the fact that Babylonian is something that appears on the big screen. You know, it didn't used to be, and now it is. There's not lots of it, but it is there. And I think that probably normalization can be the fertile soil from which certain kinds of creative activity go on to prosper. I'm sure, I'm sure that creatives can work without normalization, but I'm sure that normalization helps. So that's not a very good answer. Basically, it's let somebody else get on with it and I'll enjoy the results. <laughs> I mean, that works too, because I would love to see wonderful things done. And I hope that someone will continue to do. I mean, and that's, that's the thing, as you were mentioning, it has such a beautiful visual culture that I would love to see someone do something extravagant. And and the thing is, Eternals was like the tip of the iceberg, because the, the elaborate sequences in Babylon, the gate was lush and gorgeous and blue and looks exactly like all everything in the museums. And you you know, it's it's accurate and it's wonderful. Now, the trouble, right, with all the Greek and Roman adaptations, and, and especially the Egyptian ones, is the never-ending argument that, oh, well, we have it, but I don't want to watch it because it's very inaccurate. It's not good. And I don't want to deal with that. But at the same time, I know there's the argument to be made for, you know, Egyptomania. It, there's a lot that's bad. There's not a lot that's good, but it's still important because it gets people interested. So because we still sort of Mesopotamian things are just sort of unexplored in the, the media and adaptation realm. Do you think it's more important to be accurate or to just get people interested? I think it's important to be clear about what you're doing. And I think in the case of Emily Wilson's novel, it, it's very clear that she's written a modern novel inspired by ancient Mesopotamia. It's very difficult, difficult judgment to make. Right. And again, I'm a philologist. What do I know about how modern cultural and reception engagement works? So important to know what you're doing. Important to try and be sensitive. Like if your heart's in the right place, um, rather than poke fun at civilizations uh, or go for cheap tricks. I don't know. The Middle Ages always get quite a bad press. Um, you know, the Middle Ages are all about torture chambers and massive armies and cruel kings and God help us with Game of Thrones. Um, I mean, the Game of Thrones, which I haven't watched except for the three minutes I once saw on an airplane and switched off as soon as the body started piling up. Um, but going by what people tell me of it, it's set in a kind of pseudo medieval fantasy world. And it reinforces this idea that the Middle Ages were some kind of terrible place where only atrocities happened, which I suppose maybe they were on one level, but there was a heck of a lot of other stuff going on. You know, there were optics treaties. There was the Arab Golden Age. People were translating uh, Aristotle into Arabic. 
there was seafaring, there were medical discoveries. So I think medievalists can get quite impatient with, with the way that the Middle Ages, you know, directly or by association get betrayed. I think Mesopotamia is probably still in so much need of public attention and love and money that, I don't know, I'm almost tempted to say that in the short term, anything goes, but in the longer term, one will hopefully have the luxury of trying to build a slightly more, slightly more nuanced dialogue with this ancient people. I agree. I agree. It is very, it, it, it is sad that ancient Mesopotamia is sort of like the one child of the ancient fields that is sort of excluded from the pack. Do you think it's because at least maybe there's this perception that like the names are harder to pronounce that, oh, I don't want to do anything with that because that just sounds too hard and I don't think I could do it and it's easier to fudge it on bad Latin or bad Greek, but. Well, if we're talking, when you say do it, if we're talking about people taking a serious interest, I think probably people don't realise the intellectual paradise which research on ancient Mesopotamia is. Um, again, you know, to take a side swipe at classicists, because we're all jealous of their wonderful literature and the amazing dictionaries they have and the resources and the complexity of the secondary literature and the theoretical nuance they've been able to build in because they've had centuries to do it in. Being jealous of all that... I won't say there's nothing left to do in classics, but a lot of the basics have been done and done really well. In Assyriology, people are still writing the first grammar of Neo-Babylonian or the first grammar of Neo-Assyrian, and there are grammatical rules still being born. There are words whose meaning isn't yet known. There are entire historical characters coming out of the ground, and we're gradually building up information about them. There are archives being reconstructed. Prosopographical research, which means trying to work out the stories of individual people. So you have 50 letters from roughly the same time, and they mention John four times. Is this the same John mentioned four times, or are there four different Johns? Well, let's try and work it out by association. As one John seems to be interested in wine, but the other John is interested in sheep. So did people at the time do wine and sheep, or does that mean they're two separate people? And then social history intersects with all sorts of other things. So this ability to, to go and find out new stuff and to dance around the evidence and work up from the primary sources and go and chase the avenues that build up to finally, hopefully, your powerful conclusion, is an intellectual feast. And if you like finding stuff out and how stuff gets put together, then Mesopotamia is a subject with few parallels, because the wealth of written sources is amazing, and so many haven't been translated or analysed. Um, there's so much still to do. So are the names difficult? Well, it's interesting because a lot of the Egyptians uh, were, of course, Hellenized. So um, Thoth is actually the Herodotus version, the Egypt, the Greek version of the god whose name is conventionally rendered Jehuti, which is rather less easy on the tongue. So who knows? Maybe if all the Babylonians had had <laughs> Greek versions of their names, which, of course, they did at one time, because at one time the Greeks were in Babylonia and there was lots of interchange and there was one chap who had inscriptions in Babylonian and in Greek. Um, but yes, I don't know. Is it the names? Well, people like Gilgamesh, Ashurbanipal, Tanakarib, Sargon. Of course, the other thing about all this is the massive over-concentration on elites. It's all about the kings, because, you know, that's the... It, but it happens throughout history, doesn't it? I mean, the elites have the higher quality materials, so they build their houses in stone rather than out of straw. And also, the elites are the people who've managed to make everybody else think that they're really important, so that people are more likely to look after the house which is made of stone than the house out of straw. So there are two levels to why elite materials or 
material property are likelier to be transmitted. So with all these wretched kings, I do get tired of this concentration on kings. So perhaps it would be really nice if when somebody comes along to do something Mesopotamian, they did it. If they have to stay within the elite world, they perhaps do it about a princess. That would, you know, be a step forward. I agree. I would love to see something on a princess. I think it'd be very fun. I, From the small sample size of friends I have who are willing to engage with me in any discussion about the ancient world, when I happen to probe them and say, okay, well, do you know any king names from ancient Mesopotamia? You know, maybe two people will say, yes, uh, I know Hammurabi I, because of the law code. I know Sargon. And if I'm lucky, I will get maybe a Nebuchadnezzar or an Ashurbanipal. And usually it's very funny because their knowledge comes directly from popular culture because there's that song by They Might Be Giants, the Mesopotamians. And they happened to love They Might Be Giants and they heard the song and they go, oh yes, well, I don't really know anything about these people or what they did, but I know the song, so I know their name. And I said, well, good enough. That's a start. You know the name. Now we'll just work on teaching you who they were and what they did. Well, exactly. You know, I was on the Camino de Santiago earlier this summer until I was cut down by gastroenteritis. I had a great time and suddenly I had no computer, no email and lots of time to think. And I found that my brain started sending me things I was curious about from years before, which I'd never got round to looking up. So one of them was the Latin term quadlibet that you find in Baroque music. What on earth does it mean? I mean, it, that thing which one likes or like that thing which pleases. But what does it actually mean? And it turns out that this is the polite way of saying just chuck everything together and hope that it works. Um, which I thought was a wonderful thing. I'll start using the term quadlibet all the time. But so the reason I'm mentioning this is that precisely the people who have Sargon and Hammurabi Shabali Pal in their head, pre-internet, wouldn't really have had a way of finding anything out about these people. I suppose there was the Encyclopedia Britannica. But of course, now, if you go and Google Hammurabi, you'll find tons of stuff. Lots of it written in the early 1900s and now out of copyright and out of date with nothing to tell you that it's old and in parts wrong, which is one of the dangerous things about researching Mesopotamia online, but also lots of current scholarship, which is uh, very high quality, up to date and, and fascinating, uh, although it will be in turn outdated in 60 years time as new things are found. So, yes, it would be interesting if people have those names floating around in their head, go and chase it up. And I suppose it's our job to provide them with the tools whereby that can be done. And also through something like your podcast, which serves this wonderful function of uh, generating interest. Maybe you can be the trigger for people to realize, actually, I do have Sargon in the back of my mind. And OK, so what about him? And the answer is, do you know, that I'm currently writing a monograph on the subject, like Sherlock Holmes. There's King Sargon II of Assyria, who ruled in the late 700s, had this well in one of his inscriptions. He, he created a new capital city, and he says in this inscription, that if you go and measure the perimeter of the city in cubits, which is a unit of measurement roughly the length of the forearm, the number of cubits that measures the city's perimeter also writes his name. And people have been wondering for 100 and, gosh, maybe 150 years, actually, quite how or why this works. And I think I have a solution. Let me tell you about that if and when it's all properly sorted out. Well, then I eagerly await that day. Now... I do need to move us along, but I cannot let you go. I cannot let you escape from this conversation or myself without asking. So one of the things that our conversation has sparked is the fact that when we talk about classics, when we talk about Greece and Rome, not only do we have centuries of material just lying about for us to just sort of decide which one we would like to pick up and analyze, 
we also keep this going because, I mean, okay, the humanities by nature are very interdisciplinary. When I say this, I was, I'm usually thinking, okay, well, how do Greece and Rome talk? How are intercultural relations at play across the Mediterranean in all different directions? But that's one type of interdisciplinary research, and, and that's one meaning of it. The other one that just popped into my head was that it goes so well with contemporary issues, which helps also sort of spark this interest and this curiosity. And what I mean by that is myself, I'm an example. When I chose not to continue on to do a classics postgrad degree, I said, well, my other great interest is in political science. And I would like to mesh Greece and political science together and do an advanced degree. So I don't have to leave Greece, but I just don't have to do all the years of things that I have to do to get a classics PhD. So I decided to do a master's and I studied nationalism and cultural heritage in Turkey and Greece. And I said, this is wonderfully interdisciplinary between ancient and modern. Greece and Rome lend quite well to that because so many contemporary nations are, they say they're based off of the ideals of like the Roman Empire or Athenian democracy. But for Mesopotamia, no one really outside of the field takes any time to think about what kind of legacy is left to us from a place like Mesopotamia. I mean, sometimes we'll think of Egypt and that goes into modern Egyptian nationalism, but that's a whole different beast. But I don't really see as many obvious connections for interdisciplinary study between ancient and modern for Mesopotamia and now, at least in the US, let's say. So could that be one of the issues as well where... Could it be something like we need to find more connections and if we could get more scholars studying it through that type of interdisciplinary lens, would Mesopotamia get more love? Well, it's a good idea. I mean, this whole idea of a discipline is maybe sort of anthropological accident. It's often based around particular skill sets rather than around particular intellectual questions or phenomena. I suppose that learning the languages of ancient Mesopotamia to a level where you can use them professionally and philologically to tablets or edit them or correct them or whatever, it does take time to learn. So, of course, if you spend 10 years learning all that, then you feel like that's your discipline. But something that Mesopotamian studies, Egyptology and classics all have in common is that, as you implied, you kind of have all the subjects in one. Because through the lens of Greece and Rome, you can study whatever like. You can study dance, you can study trade, you can study religious history, you can study propaganda. And that's as true of Mesopotamia as it is of Greece and Rome or Egypt. So there's this horrendous label area studies that I've always found extremely belittling. But whenever you find yourself in a, uh, a glass jar labeled area studies, you're not quite the dead beetle you feel. You're in fact the master or you know, master and principal, the mistress of a whole area in all its complexity that you can analyze from all the different questions. And if you know the languages and you have the historical skills, then you can pursue these and collaborate with social scientists. Um, but there, there are, it is true, you know, people often think of Mesopotamia as being, oh, how to put this politely, Probably something irrelevant would be a good way of putting it. And I, I know of a degree course, actually, which is mostly politics, but had a Mesopotamian element inside it. And the politics people were protesting that what do we want the Mesopotamian element in there for? All of these are, in some sense, a subject. They're a field that encompasses everything. 
But at the same time, I, there, I know the Greek horse, which is mostly politics, but at least one time had a Mesopotamian corner, as it were. And the politics people were very sceptical of why, you know, should I tell people that Mesopotamia is rather than politics? And I remember thinking in my head, well, actually, if you knew about Mesopotamia and you knew about the reign of Hammurabi and the fact that he was a new ruler who conquered an area which was previously a different tribe and he had all the Amorite tribes that he was trying to unify and the kingdom of Mari that he conquered and inscriptions and he founded a law code. There's a massive world of political theory and propaganda that works on different levels of society and pushes different buttons, which you and I together could make a revolution from. But the premises were not such that a collaboration of that kind might have worked. Um, so I, I think you're right. I think there is a huge amount of potential for Mesopotamian sources to be approached from any number of questions. History of medicine, you know, there's, there's a German scholar who had this, uh, Franz Kircher, who had this idea that Mesopotamian medical sources that often give horrible ingredients like powdered baby's skull or whatever, were ultimately the reason why in the European Middle Ages, people actually used powdered baby's skull. Because he says in ancient Mesopotamia, these were, and somebody else already had the same idea, these were code names for drugs. So I don't write down the name of the plant, that's secret knowledge. Instead, I write down its cover name, which is powdered baby skull. And then you're supposed to know powdered baby skull actually means whatever it means. But at some point, the knowledge was lost and people just read the stuff. And went, oh, well, you know, it says powdered baby skull. So I guess that's a better do. And you're very hard to prove the links. But um, going back to your question of relevance, I think a lot of the links between Mesopotamia and later societies are going to become more evident as they're more studied. So there's the whole question of Mesopotamia and Anatolia and Homer, pretty much everybody is satisfied that you can establish links between the poem, The Theogony by Hesiod, is that right? Yes, uh, I get it mixed up with The Theodicy, but no, The Theogony by Hesiod and uh, the Kumabi cycle, which is Hurrian Hittite in the Anatolian realm. But there are also people who think that Gilgamesh exercised an influence on the Homeric poems. And we'll need more study, more sources. And as these things are better understood, the links will become more apparent. I hope so. I mean, yeah, I, that really, that whole line of questioning really just sparked from, well, my own experience, because I wrote my, I just wrote my master's thesis on iconoclasm and basically its impact on cultural heritage policy in Turkey in modern Turkey and I and I did a case study on the Hagia Sophia and so I was I was playing a lot with ancient and modern and so much from you know the Byzantine period and talking so much about Justinian and intent and in the conquest of Constantinople in 1453 and so just realizing that you know I never fancied myself a Byzantinist I was just like Psh, no they're too late I like the old stuff you know give me fifth century and any day um, there's nothing really to be yet explored really in in Byzantine studies and then oh how wrong how wrong I was um, when I finally was able to put it in context of look at the modern and look at what's happened and this conflict and so yeah I often think you know it'd be interesting if you had someone doing like world heritage studies what could you do to make it interdisciplinary with ancient Babylonia something really interesting are you going to look at monuments could you look at mythologies could you do like a comparative study of something and could not think of anything off the top of my head with Mesopotamia but I could think of 10,000 things with Greece or Rome 
And that therein is literally articulated the problem that I had asked you about. And I was like, oh, well, that's why. No wonder this is hard. But it's very interesting. The iconoclasm is all over Mesopotamia. So there was a ruler called Gudea. They have a statue of him in the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Gudea of Lagash, uh, late third millennium BC, late 2000s. Uh, and his statues nearly all lack a head because they were all sitting in a temple and then the quote-unquote barbarian invaders came along and decided to knock all the heads off. And so the heads became detached from the statues, which, um, you know, it says something about culture. Of course, on the one hand, I suppose the, the head is the easiest part of the statue to knock off because the neck is thin. But it's also reducing the individualism of uh, the ruler. It's about defacing you know that would work very well in english how does iconoclasm work which parts get targeted and why there's always a social history to all these things and i'm sure that there are people out there with the tools to ask these questions in a way that scholars of mesopotamia um can only do to a certain extent so as you say collaboration is is key collaboration is key and i'm going to make a very bad joke it sounds like the field of Assyriology and just the wider study of the ancient of ancient Mesopotamia is still a fertile crescent of uh, of, of subjects to be explored. So yes, that was a very 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 bad attempt at a very lame joke, but I still went there. Anyway, I could keep talking to you about this subject for ages because it's such a fascinating subject. But we would be dead by the time we finished so we cannot unfortunately do that so i will move us along there are and now it it changes a bit when my guest is not from the u.s and even in the uk it's less formalized so i'm going to just slightly amend my wording because usually i ask when you were a student did you attend office hours now i know office hours is not a big thing in europe it's getting better but did you have an informal type of office hours or if you had none did you just go and talk to your professors when you were in school oh let me think um there was a very clever and a very nice man called john tate who was the professor of egyptology when i was at university college london and I'm not sure I'd have gone and knocked on his door in my first year. I'm sure he'd have received me if I did, but I don't think I actually did it. But to by my third year, he was supervising my dissertation and I felt comfortable just sort of going, knocking on his door and talking to him. There was a lot of generosity towards me and my fellow students when we knocked. Whether there was a system in place that said, go and knock whenever you like, I'm not actually sure that there was. Um, I think probably there was also a certain amount of petty pride in me that kind of felt... Well, you know, fine, they're available Thursday at two, but presumably it's the losers who don't understand the lesson that go and talk to them at Thursday at two, but I understood the lesson, so I'm not going to... Which was very short-sighted, actually. You know, so fine, you understood the lesson, but then go and try and get something beyond the lesson. A friend of mine, Ricardo, in Italy, had this wonderful story. Um, so he studied philosophy in a university in Italy, and there was this very, very, very impressive uh, learned instructor. And at the end of the first session, my friend goes up to him and says... I have to tell you, I didn't understand a single thing that you said. The reply, well, that's marvellous. Then that means I have something to teach you. We can learn this together. Come to my office at 6 a.m. tomorrow and we'll talk about this. And then they had something like three-hour meetings for the rest of the year, starting, you know, six till nine. Um, so that was an example of somebody who <laughs> didn't have a, a publicised office hour, but was very keen on contact with students. So 
uh, certainly I now, do I have office hours? I think I'm supposed to. What I often say to students is send me an email if you want to talk about everything. But your, your very question actually reminds me from my own experience that sometimes that's not enough, that people then feel that they're being burdensome. So maybe I should really um, sort of regalvanize my own personal office hour. I, I'll, um, I'll think about this. Sure. Well, the second question really is kind of a follow up to the first, which is now in your capacity as a professor, even if you're teaching in a country and in a system that does not have them the way that they are here at a U.S. university. But if you were to do your own sort of in, in, informal one, because I would hope that it would be a good idea over there, too. What would you say to students who you would like to encourage to maybe come to some sort of un, informal office hour if you were to do it? Let me tell you a mini story. I was recently at a conference and I spoke to a friend of mine who said, I would really like to go and talk to Specialist X, but I don't know what about. And I thought, hmm, that's very cleverly put. And so a couple of evenings later, I met Specialist Z for the first time. And I said to them, you know, I'd really like to talk to you, but I don't know what about. We were, as it happens, at the end of conference disco when we had this conversation, and they said, how about chess? And I said, fantastic, is there a board? And so we went and had a game of chess in the middle of the conference disco, which I very much enjoyed. So I suppose there might well be students out there who feel something like, I'd like to come to your office hour and talk to you, but I don't know what about. Um, is it my job to have the answer? Is it their job to have the answer? These are things which we'll have to negotiate. But certainly, I think... Whenever I get an email from a student that isn't about something absolutely routine, my answer is usually, let's have a Zoom call. For one thing, Zoom calls can be less intimidating. They're also easier to organise, easier to schedule. But very often, it, once you start talking, it turns out that people have more to say than was first apparent. So I often feel it's kind of useful to put the fish in the pool and then see how far it wants to swim. Now, I, I, I think it's interesting. Talking to you, I think this whole idea of your... My, my university, Trinity College Dublin, does have officially sanctioned office hours, but I wonder whether sometimes I, I've kind of um, been lazier out them than I should. So I'll, I'll go away and think about that. Yeah, I, you know, this is this is why I have a show called Ancient Office Hours, because they're meant to mimic my office hours experiences when I was an undergrad, because I was the type of student who I always say I was the probably the student that they hated and wanted to get rid of because I never left their office hours. I would basically live in them if I could. I would bring food and a blanket <laughs> and I'd be like, can I just, you know, nap in your office? And they'd be like, oh, my God, does she go home? No, I don't. I didn't. That was the point. But yeah, so, you know, but it was a singular experience for me. And I just had such a wonderful time because a professor of mine, I like went in borderline, you know, on the edge of a nervous breakdown one day. And she was like, oh, my gosh, are you OK? And I just said, I think I'm going to go to jail because I don't know how to do my taxes. And she offered to teach me how to do my taxes. So it's this kind of wonderful thing where you don't even need educational help from them. I would go with questions about their career or their path or resources or the class but oftentimes we would just talk about anything else and that's what made it special and dynamic and so that's why I, I'm always very curious to see what other people think about this idea of just going and chatting up a, a professor so that's that's really why I ask. Interesting in my university we do have a system of what are called personal tutors so if you needed a responsible adult to give you help with your taxes, I think the system would say, go and talk to your tutor. But of course, you probably see your instructors more often than you see your tutor. And a bond of trust can probably be developed in some cases, maybe more easily. So, well, I, I can barely do my own tax return. But if anybody ever wants help with their own, they're very welcome to ask and I'll see what I can do. Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> yes. 
And anything that that helps. Yes, for sure. Well, anyway, at the end of each podcast episode, I ask if my guest will read Shelley's Ozymandias poem. And then after you've read the poem, this is meant to be just a nice quick quick analysis but basically this poem has been cited as a quite influential quite lovely poem that makes an impact on a lot of people both I've heard this from personal conversations and just looking up kind of on the internet you know what do people think of Ozymandias and for those who know it they say it's famous and it's wonderful and it's deep and so I'm curious to know from your perspective as a scholar do you agree with this assessment and do you think that this poem does sort of what people think it does which is teach us a lesson offer us insight into something Uh, is it a reflection of i don't know our own ideas when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Embark on a digital exposition unlike any other with hit points in history. Dive into the captivating realm of Archeogaming from the comfort of your screen, March 9th and 10th at our virtual Archeogaming conference. Join academics, professionals, and gamers of all levels on an interactive journey through live streams, workshops, and collaborative gaming events. Whether you're a seasoned adventurer or just starting out your quest, there's something for everyone. Your adventure awaits at Hit Points in History, March 9th and 10th. To buy tickets and find out more, head over to hitpointscon.com. From now until February 29th, use code LEAPYEAR to get a 29% off discount. Let's read it, shall we? 
I met a traveller from an antique land, who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, or Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. What are my reactions? Well, first of all, I will give that it's a good poem. It would take me quite a lot of effort to write anything like this myself. Let's see. So I met a traveller from Antique Land. Not clear what the gender of the traveller is. Could be a man, could be a woman. I obviously put on a deep male voice, but it doesn't say that. An antique land is interesting because to us today, the word antique means something else. So already it's kind of using an old fashioned... Well, it's using a word whose meaning is old-fashioned in an old-fashioned way to talk about old-fashioned things. So there's a, a kind of snake biting its tail effect going on. Who said? Two vast and trunkless legs of stone. That's very good. Trunkless. You wouldn't see that very often. Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. And I think that's quite clever because you have these legs and you, you've imagined them to yourself somehow. And when I read that just now, I was thinking of them stretched out on the ground. But then there's the surprise that they stand. So, yes, they're trunkless, but they haven't been completely defeated by the passage of time. They're actually still standing up in the desert. And yes, of course, the desert, ha, 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 the Middle East and the desert nights. It's very, very orientalizing. But, you know, it's pushing the orientalizing button for all it's worth near them on the sand so desert wasn't good enough now we have to have the sand as well half sunk a shattered visage lies that's interesting again this idea it actually goes back to what you said about iconoclasm right this idea that the head is the most important part of the human face uh, so here the legs are trunkless but we don't hear that much more about them but the visage is shattered because we're more interested we have more detail about the visage than the rest of it and the visage lying, because the visage is normally vertical, but lying is something you do horizontally. So that's telling us that something's gone wrong. Whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command? Well, yes, this is all rather tedious, because I think there's a, an implicit message that we're supposed to admire this sneering, cold individual with a wrinkled lip. It's also interesting, um, of course, it could be Hatshepsut, but she sort of wore male garb anyway most of the time but we, we very much have a, a male power thing going on here wrinkled lip it's interesting because wrinkled by itself i'm not sure that the phrase wrinkled lip is completely transparent um you know you talk about lips curling when people are smirking but as soon as you have wrinkled lip followed by sneer then you kind of get the message that wrinkled lip is actually part of the sneering of cold command so it's somebody powerful and detached so they're far away from us and detached in time. But even had we met them face to face, they would still be detached because they sneer at us. Tell. So that's very clever because you've instilled a number of features in the reader's mind and suddenly you mobilise them. 
you know, it's like this material I've given you, you know what, actually it leads somewhere. So they tell that it's sculptor again, could be a man, could be a woman. Well, those passions read, uh, that's nice old fashioned wording. I like that. And of course, it talks about one sculptor, though probably a whole team of people who churned these things out. But tell that it's sculptor, well, those passions read. And here we're buying into the propaganda because the idea is that statues of huge, powerful people are generated by passions. This is basically fascism, right? It's the idea that speaking as someone who's half Italian myself, you know, the people of Italy so much loved Benito Mussolini that they created these huge statues of him. Well, it's actually a bit more complicated than that, but at least that's the kind of version we're supposed to be imbibing here. So there were these passions and the sculptor read these passions and these passions yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. So this is the romantic connection to the past. You find some broken stuff in the desert, but then through this, you're able to see so much more. So that I like that. That is something I find reflected in my own uh, personal professional experience. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. I don't completely understand the syntax of this. So all that stuff tells that it's sculptor, well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. There are various ways you could take that. It could Syntactically, you could be stamping onto these lifeless things, what? Stamping the hand that mocked them. Or it could be an apposition. Um, these lifeless, which the passion, which yet... I think it would take me a long time to disentangle what's going on with those lines, so I won't try and do that now. I will move swiftly on. Uh, but I like the heart that fed without a direct object. Um, and of course, the whole idea of clothing the naked and feeding the hungry is what Egyptians talk about in autobiographies. So... Shelley was onto something there. And on the pedestal, these words appear. Now, that's interesting because we didn't know there was a pedestal, right? So far, we're just talking about legs standing in the desert. Uh, so it turns out they're not actually standing in the desert. So we have a double thing. I thought they were flat. Then it turns out they're vertical. Then it turned out the pedestal under them. So, you know, is there a crowd of vultures flapping their wings to prop the pedestal up? Who knows what else is going on? Um, and on the pedestal, these words appear. That's also very nice because um, the appearance of the words on the pedestal... Appear has, what, two different meanings. You know, I think the way the poet is using it in quite an old-fashioned way is static. He means these words are written, but it's the first time we're seeing them. So for up, it's dynamic. These words appear before our eyes as they're spoken for the first time. So that's a nice little play on the appearing. My name is Ozymandias, Ozymandias, and a beautiful name, not a clue what it means. You know, it looks really foreign, it's long, it could be anything, right? It could be, could be Persian, could be Greek, could be Egyptian, who knows? But it doesn't matter, because I'm kind of beyond that. I'm the king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. And here my Italian side has to say this sounds like a cheap crib from Dante's Inferno, which is Abandon All Hope, O Ye Who Enter, which works even better in Italian than it does in English. Abbandonate ogni speranza voi che entrate. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Capitalized works and capitalized mighty. That's nice, because it's kind of associating us with him. You know, Ozymandias wrote, I, Ozymandias, did works, and you, the reader, are mighty, and the works, and you, the reader, are talking together, and we put you in capital letters, which is a nice conceit, because, of course, ancient Egyptian doesn't actually have capital letters, but details. Uh, look on my works, ye mighty and despair. In other words, nobody will ever be as powerful or at least as visually impressive as I was. And to be fair, you know, the Egyptians, 
nobody's yet built a pyramid quite Egyptian style. So again, he's onto something. And certainly the arrogance, I'm sure, was shared by many a pharaoh. I mean, despair seems a bit much, right? It implies that the only thing that we ever want to do is to look big and powerful. But I guess that's the kind of whole um, mode that we're buying into. Nothing beside remains. Now, what's really interesting here is that it's unclear uh, where the quotation stops, because the quotation itself isn't in quotation marks, right? These words appear. We start reading the words on the statue, and clearly, my name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. This is on the statue. Fine. Look at my works in mighty and despair. Sounds like it's on the statue. Nothing beside remains. Actually, that could be on the statue, uh, meaning, you know, once I'm dead and gone, apart from me, there's nothing else worth considering. But it could also be that we've ended the quotation, and this is now traveller from the antique land who's commenting we saw this statue we could read the words and there ain't anything else um so that's a very nice transition from the words that are quoted from the pedestal of the statue back to the voice of the traveller from the antique land because it's it's unclear where along the way the switch happens it's a bit like the underworld in ancient mesopotamia the underworld is a very clearly defined city with gates and walls and a river and our world is very well defined and the two are connected by a silver thread but nobody quite knows what happens along the silver thread, right? Similar thing going on. Round the decay of that colossal wreck again with a capital W. Let's go and have a look where the other capitals were. Hmm. Assuming that near them on the sand is capitalized because there are full stops before it, then Ozymandias, king of kings, works and mighty and wreck. So suddenly... The, is it the first time we're referring to the thing as a whole? Because we have the legs, the visage, then we have the details, uh, we have the pedestal, but this is the, that colossal wreck is the first time that we're actually using a phrase to refer to the object as a whole and we're capitalizing it. Colossal wreck, boundless and bare. Alliteration is something that Mesopotamians also knew about, boundless and bare alone and level so again alliteration we're using all the tricks in the rhetorical copybook here the lone and level sands stretch far away so two alliterations in one line lone and level sands stretch far away so as you say it very orientalizing in many respects quite tedious but very grand and of course the grandeur is precisely what makes it tedious ideologically but is also what makes it very appealing on the aesthetic level if you're willing to buy into it so all in all i'd give it seven and a half out of ten I love when I get this, the stray guest who will give me a detailed analysis of the poem because I don't think, I think when people read poetry, they'll kind of read it and then look for the overall meaning and messages, which is great and a, and a wonderful thing to do. And, and I do that a lot. But I love hearing from people who are language experts because when you get down to the nitty gritty of looking at how something might have been composed and, and and what might have gone into the meaning. It reveals so many more key details that one would not have thought about. And I haven't actually gone through line by line like that in a very long time. And so I'm very happy that you brought that up because it, it does spark so many more things that I hadn't thought about. Just to, to sort of pull the camera back a little bit from the line by line analysis. When I look at it as, as a whole, right, I see a memento mori 
by Shelley. I see this man was very influenced by the politics of what was going on in his time. He wrote this in 1818. And we knew at that point that Ozymandias was the Greek name of the Egyptian pharaoh Ramesses, and Osmanius is just the Hellenization of his throne name, Usur Ma'atre, or Usur Ma'atra. So it makes sense when I have that in context, which I love. But also, you know, he's talking about dynasty and lineage, monumentality, and all these themes of sort of lasting forever and, and greatness, legacy, all these things that you can kind of put as almost synonyms of each other. But they still stick in a very meaningful way. And it is in that vein that I kind of like to ask my final question for each guest, which is if we're taking all these wonderful themes together and thinking about the poem this way, and and that's what adds to its mystique. If we consider our contemporary society right now, do we have like a modern Ozymandias, something that we think is so great and amazing and will be around forever and yada, yada, yada. But will humans, let's say, let's be generous and say 500 years from now, look back and say, oh yes, we agree with them. Or no, they were just crazy. I mean, will will humans 500 years look at something about today's society and say, oh gosh, they're going to look at that the way we look at this poem and just have questions and say, I don't know, you know, that's not around. Interesting. There are at least two questions, aren't there? There aren't, it goes in different directions. One is whether we're producing a cultural icon which will still be around. And the other is how people will react to us uh, more in general. Will they find anything from us that's still there? I suppose... You know, with artificial intelligence coming out of the box right now, in the same way that, you know, people today often find it hard to imagine antiquity in colour because everything before 1950 is black and white. People probably find it hard to imagine a world in which artificial intelligence didn't exist. And I dread to think what's going to happen. I mean, are the computer's going to write all the novel. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not giving you a very structured answer. I'm sure that there are any number of cultural icons today, just like in ancient Egypt, because, of course, next door you had Ramesses II was a new kingdom pharaoh. And in the new kingdom, yes, Egypt kind of was the quote unquote most powerful top nation of the known world. But, you know, these things go in cycles. And there were other people um, who were saying that they were at least as powerful, even if uh, they weren't believed. So, and Ramesses lost his pretty much lost his battle of Kadesh, but he against the Hittites. But he went home and put up a load of description saying that he won it. And we only know from the other side that actually he didn't really. He it was more of a loss than a win. So, I suppose once you start peeling back the narrative behind these smooth cultural icons, um, you discover that they have feet of clay. Um, and I'm sure that we could all think of prominent individuals who like to say that they're powerful and successful and they want to have a bunch of followers and whose sort of persona doesn't withstand close scrutiny in quite the same way. Cultural icons. Well, there are fashions. I'm sure that I'm not sure of anything, really. Um, I was going to say I'm sure that there are some songs which are uh, produced these days, which are so powerful that they resonate. But that's probably not true, actually. I mean, a lot of medieval sonnets, very high-value cultural artifacts in their own time, but people today tend to read them and get bored. So maybe in 500 years, people listen to the Beatles and say, what's that all about? You know, it's just a bunch of people croaking, where's the Gazupiter? You know, so very hard to predict. 
I think your question is a very interesting exercise in thinking about ourselves. And of course, I suppose that's one of the things Shelley's poem wanted us to do. Whether it's a memento mori, I don't know. So that I can see that in the mix, but I find it a very ambivalent poem. Because at the end of the day, it's true, you know, Ozymandias is long dead, but his message does still survive and enough of the statue survives to show that he was, he had bigger statues than anybody since. On that level, he's actually successful. But on the other level, you know, despite how powerful and successful he was, then it's all broken away and nothing remains. So I think actually the poem leaves you in a bit of a quandary as to its overall indication in that sense. Oh, but my goodness, people looking back. I'd, I'd like to think it's more about communities than it is about individuals. The, the whole idea of the, the Superman is Nietzschean. It's it's a very reactionary way of thinking about the world. Everything. Who's the best pianist? Who's the best guitarist? Who's the most powerful king? But even the people who are, quote unquote, the most powerful king or equivalent can only govern effectively because they have a massive class of people under them. And Ronald Syme, the Roman historian, once wrote that actually every government is governed by an oligarchy. Because, you know, if you just had Ramesses the second or the third or whoever sitting there saying, obey me, and nobody did, well, that would be the end of Ramesses the second, right? It's only because there you have the, the generals and everybody else who say, yes, we'll buy into this and there's something in it for us. So I suppose that's um, that's a, another dimension, right? Do we want to, to have this convergent focus onto a cultural icon that we put on a pedestal, metaphorical or otherwise? Or do we want to think in a broader way about, about how humans behave and interact? And that would be nice. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons I love asking this question. And and I do spend a lot of my time thinking about exactly the sort of the legacy that humans will leave and how we will be remembered as a, as a, as a culture, as people. I mean, it just because it... it I remember having a conversation with a friend and she and I were saying, goodness me, we have so many like huge statues of like Mickey Mouse. And if you, if aliens were to come here after we've all died of climate change and if they find a giant statue of Mickey Mouse, are they going to say, good Lord, these people were insane. They must have worshipped as their God, a giant happy mouse who wears overalls and gloves. And I really don't want that to be the sum, the legacy of us as humans. A giant Mickey Mouse statue may be found broken and shattered in the, the wreckage of whatever we leave. So that's an interesting question to think about. And that's why I, I enjoy asking it and, and having other people tell me what they think. Because, uh, yes, I'm tired of hearing myself just think about that myself. We often, today, we very much get interested in the author of a work of literature. So we want to know about them. We have the celebrity cult and everything. In ancient Mesopotamia, as indeed in most pre-modern settings, um, actually works were anonymous and people weren't interested in the author. Now, I think in the case of Mesopotamian poetry, probably, yes, there were individuals who had a particular skill with whatever feature of language or, or imagery uh, sort of gives the literature to the literature. But the idea of anonymity um, is a, a nice way to think of it being generated by community. You know, yes, I am, quote unquote, a Babylonian poet genius who writes Gilgamesh, but I can only do that because there's a ton of people around me who read and write Babylonian, who interact with me, who give me ideas, who give me the experiences. This all, you know, is the, the analogy with taxes. Uh, the big companies don't want to pay taxes because they say, oh, you know, but why should we have to? Because we don't use the roads, we use drones instead. But you're part of the infrastructure, you know, you're the people who man the drones come to work on the road in the morning. If the roads weren't there, put there by central government, then your company couldn't exist. And it, you can only exist because the central government is 
maintaining the nation and that's why you have to pay taxes to maintain the nation so in a similar idea this whole idea of the, the individual artistic genius can only exist because they're embedded in in a much wider network but i, I don't know what it would mean in context to study these communities i suppose you could study phenomena like ripples and currents a lot of the history of art is like that isn't it the 1920s and the bauhaus movement and uh, and the cubists Individuals, yes, but also networks of individuals. I suppose that's a start. But with the, the Mickey Mouse example is very interesting. In fact, it's very interesting here that Shelley has decided to include words from the pedestal, right? Uh, this idea that somehow information is incomplete unless there are words associated with it. It has to have a label to explain what it is. In a sense, if he hadn't had the label from the pedestal, it would all be implicit. Why would anybody bother creating this enormous statue unless it were to say something like, I'm the king of kings and you're a nobody, but Shelley really wants to spell it out for us. The Mickey Mouse statue would probably come without a label. So that would be very interesting because that leaves more interpretive wriggle room for your future scientists to, or philologists to think through. But I think that the fabric of my thoughts is becoming threadbare. <laughs> So my the, the amount of sense I can give you per unit time is is lessening. <laughs> so no worries. I did lie. There's one more question I'm going to ask you, but it, it should be very easy. And that is, where can people find you if they would like to read more about your, your work or read your work or perhaps email you to ask if they can come take a class or study with you or anything? Oh, well, this is one very good thing about academics, which is that they're very easy to find. If you Google Martin Worthington, Trinity College, Dublin, there I am. I think it's the only profession which is like that. With a doctor or a lawyer or a gardener, whoever, I wouldn't expect to find all of them sitting online ready to receive emails. But academics, that's the way universities work. So I'd be delighted to hear. So professionally, people can find me in Dublin, in my office in the Arts Building, um, either teaching or sending admin emails or doing research. Uh, my writings, let's see, well, the books you'd have to go to a library for, but the articles are mostly on academia.edu. There's some of the stuff that I've written there, um, and you'll find it animated by the same conceits and preoccupations, prejudices and curiosities, which has been animating this conversation. Wonderful. And of course, I would have to mention one more time that if they wanted to see your work in action, they could watch Eternals. The Poor Man of Nippur, N-I-P-P-U-R. Yes, or or that too. So I will link Poor Man of Nippur along with your academia page and your faculty page in our show notes. And then I will just remind people to watch Eternals. I'm not going to bother linking it there. That would be difficult. But anyway... Thank you so much for coming and having a nice, wonderful chat with me this evening. I know it is getting later, but this really has been such a fun conversation. And please, I'm hoping that you will come back and, and join us again at some point. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was marvelous. Have a nice evening. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings.
Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.